Well, successful, successful businesses will often use a very clear and succinct mission statement. Uh, for example, give you a couple examples. Publix, where my wife likes to shop, um, she, she, Publix's mission statement is this. It, it is to be the premier quality food retailer in the world. CVS, you probably are familiar with that. It seems to be on just about every corner. Their mission statement is this. We will be the easiest pharmacy retailer for customers to use. Ford Motor Company. We are a global family with a proud heritage passionately committed to providing personal mobility for people around the world. And of course, my very favorite of all is Chick-fil-A. And it says this, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us, amen, to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. And that, my friends, is why we must all eat more chicken, right? That's, that's a great, great mission statement. I love that. The reason that these companies have mission statements is not only to be able to help the consumer understand uh, what they're all about, but it's also to help the company, the employees that make up that company, to remind them of what they're about and to help them to stay the course of, of why they set out to be who they actually are. Well, you may not know this, but the Apostle Paul, even though he didn't own a business, he was all about business, the Apostle Paul, and he himself had his own um, his own uh, mission statement. In fact, we read it. You may not have known this, but we read it last week in chapter 1 and verse 20. Look at that with me just for a moment. He, he says that in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20, he wrote there, he said, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You get that? You understand what he's saying? He goes, look, now as always, his whole purpose and all of his life and in every way, whether death or life, that Christ would be honored in everything that he says and does, his attitudes and his actions. Later, he'll sum it up this way. He'll say, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do for what? The glory of God. Yes? So this idea of honored that he uses here is the same word that we get our work glorified, magnified. They're all synonyms of one another. And all of them literally mean to make big. So Paul is saying, he goes, man, the one reason I exist, the one reason for me living or dying or whatever it is, is to make Christ big. Now, I know some of you are probably scratching your head because you're thinking, well, isn't Jesus already big? Yes, but here's specifically what he means. He means to make or to get someone to perceive him as big. We know that a lost and dying world does not see Christ as big, as grand, as glorious, as, as wonderful, as awesome, because they're blinded by their own sin. And so what he says is, I want to the world to perceive just how big and grand Jesus Christ is through all that I say and through all that I do. That's his mission statement. And by the way, it ought to be yours as well. You exist to glorify God in all things. Listen, you exist so that you will, by the way you live, make Christ appear big to a blinded, lost, and dying world, to put Christ on display for the whole world to see. Amen? You good with that? And some of you are like, really? That's really what we're, yeah, that's really what we're supposed to uh, be doing. 
Now, we know that even though there are these mission statements, we know that there has to be a practical way of working those out. Every company tries to work that out. What's the best way to be able to fulfill this particular mission? Well, Paul was the same way. Paul had a mission statement, but he also had a methodology of how to do that, how to make sure that everything in all times that Christ was being honored through his body and through what he was ultimately doing. And what we find is that these are two things that we can follow for ourselves. Paul says, I'm going to live for his glory. I'm going to live for his honor in two ways. Here they are. Don't you like that I've only been having two points and not three? Isn't that that been glorious? Don't raise your hand, sinner. All right, the first one is this. First one is this. To live for Christ. First way that we make sure that God is glorified and honored in all things is we live for Christ. Now, look at verse 21. What Paul does here is he begins to write the, probably the most popular, famous um, um, scripture in all of the book of Philippians, which is saying something because the whole book is filled with bumper sticker material, right? I mean, we know the verses in Philippians, and this is probably the most popular of them all. So Paul comes and he says, listen to this, for me to live is Christ, finish it, and to die is what? It's again, we know this verse. What, what, what is it? We're familiar with it, but do we really understand what Paul is saying? Do we know what he's saying when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Well, there's really two parts, right? The living part and the dying part. When he says, for me to live is Christ, in essence, what he's saying is his whole life is about Jesus. Pretty simple, right? He, he, let me break it down a little bit more. The whole, my whole life is about Jesus. In other words, my greatest love, my greatest affections are for Jesus, the reserve for him and him alone. He loves Christ with all of his heart, soul, mind, and his strength. Of all that he knows, and we know Paul knows a lot, right? He wants to know Christ more than anything else in the world, anyone or en- anything. He wants to submit his whole life to Christ, not to not to uh, culture, uh, not to religion, but to Christ himself. In fact, he wants to submit himself to the extent that he's willing to suffer, to be imprisoned, to be beaten, and even die and be put to death because of obedience and his submission to Jesus Christ. For Paul, there was no area in his life that Christ was not absolutely central, no part, no aspect of his life that Christ was not ruling and reigning supreme over all of it. That's what Paul means when he says to live is Christ. Now, have you ever known someone like this? Let me, let me be a little more specific. Have you ever known an individual that whenever you thought of them, something else immediately came to mind? All right? Okay, so, so, yeah, um, not, maybe not always good, okay, but I, I don't mean bad stuff, but what I mean is you think of a person automatically, something that they do or something that they like or something that they sell, you can't think of that person without thinking about that thing. Uh, it could be a hobby that they have, it could be that they're a fan of something, but you can't separate them. Whenever you stop and think about John, you think about John the Hunter, you can't separate the two because that's always what he's talking about. It's always what he's living for. You think of Stephen, you think of Stephen the carpenter. Why? Because he's always whittling away at something. Saria, the, the makeup artist. The, these things, these people and what they do or what they like or what they're a part of are, have become 
intricately woven together that you can't think of one aspect of it without the other. You think of carpentry, you think of Stephen, you think of, you understand, right? It goes back and forth. And the truth is, let's really be honest, uh, these people can tend to be a little annoying, right? Um, You don't always want to be around them, uh, especially if what they like or what they're about is is not your thing, right? You're like, they're gonna, I'm a seminal fan, and they're going to talk about the Gators constantly. Every time I go around them, it's a little bit annoying. Well, this is who Paul was. If you didn't want to hear about Jesus, if you were annoyed by the name of Jesus, you would be annoyed by him all the time. Why? Because it was constantly on his mind and constantly on his heart. Why do people talk about certain things so much? Well, the Bible is very clear because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Be very clear. Listen to yourself sometimes. Whatever is coming out is because that is what your heart is set on. It's what your mind is set on. And for Paul, it was all about Jesus. You're seeing these new things. I guess we're getting away from bumper stickers now, I, I think-ish. Uh, what we're having now is we're having like a rear view, you know, the, the, the rear window stickers. You know, you see the little family on the back of it, right? The droids, like Dan's, you know, you see like R2-D2 and whatever their names, you see all that. You got other people that have like dogs. And like, it's not just like their family and dogs. It's like big dog, little dog, you know, mama dog, whatever. You're like, what are, I, I don't know what's going on here. But you see these things on the back of windshields now. Now one of the very big things is to see these statements, beach life, island life, and my own personal Yuli favorite, hick life, right? I mean, I, you love that. Now, what are they doing? They're making a statement. They're saying, this is what we believe life is all about. We believe that life is worth living because of the beach, because of the island. And everything we do in life revolves around living out this type of life, this type of living. Well, if, Christ, if, if, if you ask Paul, Paul's not living the beach life. Paul is living the what? The, the Christ life. It's all about what he's focused on, what he loves, what, he, what, what, he, what, he, what his heart nourishes in, and what, what, is, what fills his heart is all about Jesus all the time. And it ought to be the same as us. You and I ought to be able to say, for me to live is Christ. We ought to be living the Christ life. It's the way to be able to honor him. We're living for him. I think the tendency for us, and you let me know, um, if this is true, I think the tendency sometimes is to look at somebody like Paul and to think, well, that's Paul, Mike. Listen, he's got all the time in the world on his hands. He's a missionary. He's an apostle. We're no Paul, and that's absolutely correct. We are no Paul, but we ought to want to be. Paul even says of himself in, in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am as a, an imitator of Christ Jesus. He says, I'm seeking to live the Christ life. Now follow me as I seek to live the life of of Christ. Do you you see that? Uh, Later on, Paul will write to the the Colossians. In in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, When Christ, now note this, who is your life, Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He says, look, my desire is, is to live the Christ life. For me to live as Christ, it's all about Christ. For you as a believer in Jesus Christ, it all ought to center around this person of Jesus. Now, here we come. Here, here's where we go with this. Once we understand what Paul's saying, do we understand what Paul's saying? All about Jesus, life he's trying to live? Then the question is for us, is, is that how we're living? Do we live for Christ? Can we say for us to live is Christ? 
Is there some type of test that we can use to kind of sort out and to find out if that's actually the reality of our life? Because let's face it, easy to say, easy to put on a shirt or a coffee mug to live as Christ is dying grain. Love it. We all know it. But I think that the reality in life, we're not even close for many of us. So is there a test? So I begin to sit down and begin to think of my own life and understand this is I think first as I'm studying the word of God, I think first for myself, what does this mean for me that God is clearly saying? And then, and then I think for you as a pastor here under shepherd here at Celebration Baptist Church, here's a couple things that I begin to just come to the conclusion of. I begin to think that it, I came to, and said this, if, if, if the only time I, I crack open the word of God, pray to God and think about godly things is one day a week on Sunday then it's probably safe to say that Christ is not my life. If, if all of my money and all that I have is, 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 is spent on other things and none of it is spent on the propagation of the purposes of Jesus Christ and the gospel sent throughout the nations, then it's probably pretty clear, would you agree, that probably Christ is not my life. Would you agree? Are we feeling convicted or retired or is this boring? It's, it's got to be one of the three, all right? Which one? If we would say that most of our time, most of our thoughts, most of our affections, and the things that we think about that really gets us excited is anything more than the person of Jesus Christ, then we could possibly say that Jesus Christ is probably not our life. Would you agree? Well, those are things that I was thinking. You may be thinking something completely different, but what I love is Paul actually gives us the test. We don't even have to think about it. We don't have to make it up for ourselves. He actually gives us the test that helps us to determine if, in fact, Jesus Christ is truly our life or if that is just what we have on the back of our cars. What he says is this. Notice the very next part. He says, to live is, for me to live is Christ. And then what is the last part? And to die is what? Gain. There is no unbelieving, idol-worshiping individual on the face of the planet that believes that death is gain. For them, it is ultimate loss. Everything that they live and everything that they've coveted and everything they've made an idol within their life, those things they lose. Their friends, their family, their fame, their, their, their fun, everything that they love at that point has to be laid down. They can't take it with them. They're gone. That is ultimate loss. And unfortunately, we believers in our attempt to be honest, many of us may say, I can identify with their pain. Because there are there that many things that we love and we nourish within our life. I'm not saying that it's bad, but in comparison of loving Christ, that level and that comparison is t- far too close. When Jesus comes and he tells us, he, when, when he tells his disciples, unless you hate your mother and father, you cannot be my disciple. He's not promoting hate. He's saying, in comparison to your love for me, your love for anyone or anything else closest to you should appear as hate to me. That's the Christ life. Do you see that? That's the Christ life. And so what we find is in the word of God is, is unfortunately for some believers, we can again identify with a sense of loss. But for Paul, losing all of these things, and he's going he's to unpack this more in chapter 3 and verses 7 through 9, so I'm not going to go in through it much. He goes, but losing all of those things is nothing compared to what he gains at the point of death. Now, why can he say that? There's only one way you can say that. The only, one, only way you can say for me to live as Christ and die as gain is if everything that you live for in this life is Christ. Because the moment that you die, you receive in fullness the very thing that you've spent your entire life living for. 
That's why he's able to say, for me to live is all about Christ, to die is gain, because for the first time in the most full way imaginable, I receive the very Jesus that I live for here on this particular earth. Now, Paul, for Paul, listen, be, be understandable, because we get this way. The more, the more creaks I get, my, the more my knee hurts, right? The more your neck, you begin to sit there and go, yes, the longing of a new body. We get that, Right? right? Some already have a new body. We know. Don't show us anymore, all right? You're already perfect, okay? We get that. But for the rest of us, as we begin to age, we begin to understand that. But Paul's, Paul is not sitting there going, man, uh, listen, for me to die is gain because my suffering is over. And if anybody knew suffering for righteousness sake, it would be Paul. He's not saying it simply because his striving against sin is over. And this is a man who constantly strove against, fought, fought against the flesh, right? The reason that it's gained for him is because he gains Jesus Christ. He says it this way, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul writes, for now we see in mirror dimly, but then face to face. Right now we only see a part of what it is that's driving him and, and, and what, why he's living, but one day we're going to see in full and crystal clear HD quality the very person that you have been living for. It's the only way to, to say this. Do we understand, and I want to make sure that we do, do we believe this, that for the believer, death is actually gain? Do we believe that? Okay. The only reason I say that is because I've been to one too many funerals where I'm, sh- I'm not convinced that that's the case of believers of Jesus Christ. And now, now, listen, when somebody that we love passes away, you are going to cry. You are going to weep because of what that person meant to you, because they're, they're, they're no longer there inside of your life, and there's a void in your life. And we ought to cry because the crying is demonstrating the worth and value of that person's life. Would you agree? We're, we're all good with that. But, but what happens sometimes is I feel as though the, 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 the Christians are in somehow weeping for the one who passed. It's almost as though they're crying for that person, especially when that person is younger. You know, they're 98. They're like, hey, man, yeah, well, praise God. You know, hey, they lived a good life, whatever. They're, they're, they're 22. Then you hear things more like this. Even if they were a believer in Jesus Christ, it's such a shame. Their whole life was ahead of them as though they lost something. No believer in Jesus Christ, no matter what age they die, ever loses anything. They gain everything. The very thing that they live for is, is what they gain when they die. Now listen, how, what do we do with this truth? I think there's three things that we need to do with it because I think we could just sit there and go, okay, that's great. Christ is supposed to be our life. But what we have to ask, because we're commanded, Christ is to be our life how do we make him our life? I think the first thing that we do is this. First of all, we confess. We confess this morning as we're looking and we're hearing the word of God and the Holy Spirit's working. We confess, dear Jesus, truth of the matter is, I can say to live as Christ and die as gain. I can wear the t-shirt. I can live everything else. But the truth of the matter is, is where my affections are and where my thoughts are and, and, and where my allegiances are. And, and what gives me joy and what doesn't give me joy in this life, the truth of the matter is there are other things that are fighting for my affections above you. The first thing for you and I this morning, can we, can we do this, is just confess. Just confess. Jesus, the truth is, is right now in my life, I probably am not living the Christ life. 
I can probably say that you are not my life. You are not the very central thing that I'm ultimately living for. There are things daily, weekly that are clouding that and pulling and fighting against it. Anybody else feel that? Let's begin by confessing. Let's, let's start, secondly, by repenting. The confession is the saying, God, forgive me. The repenting is turning from that sin. See, the, some of the reasons that these things are the way that they are is because we set these idols up in our life. We're fostering them. We're giving a time. You know what we need to do? Some of us need to today in our repentance in light of this to make sure that Christ's life is to rearrange your schedule. If you're always too late to be in the house of God, if you're always too busy to read the word, if you're always too busy to do the work of Jesus Christ, then we need to repent, confess that, and repent in turn and begin to do some schedule arranging and changing, yes, to make Christ the first in our life. Third thing that we do, first is confess, second, we repent, third thing is we, repent, we, we pray for mercy and grace. What we do is this. You may not think of this. What you do is say, God, I confess that in all sincerity, I probably cannot say that you are my life. But I want you to be my life. I want to love you with every affection. I want to fight against that pull and that idolatry that I have in my life for that person, that thing, that whatever it is. God, I pray your help and your grace that you would reign supreme on my heart of all my love, my mind and my heart. That's how we respond to that truth. How do we honor God? First of all, we live for Christ. We live the Christ life. Number two, number two, and this should get a little bit more lively, by the way, because I know this whole living for Christ thing is overrated. So uh, let's, let's look at the same thing. Live for Christ. Number two, live like Christ. Live like Christ. There's a difference between the two. One is you're living. Everything is about him. Everything revolves around him. But then there's another thing of living like him. Notice how Paul does this. He says, if I am to live in the flesh. Now, when he says that, he's not talking about sin. Sometimes we talk about living in the flesh and sinful living or fleshly living. He's not talking using the word flesh in those terms. What he's simply saying is, hey, listen, if I'm, I'm on this trial, and if I go through this trial, and at the end of it, God sees fit and Caesar pardons me, all right, and I'm acquitted from wrongdoing, and I'm able to go my way. That's him living on in the flesh. He's not dying. Got that? Hey, but what will he do with his new release? Well, notice this. He says, that means fruitful labor for me. Paul says, after this trying time, at least two years in imprisonment, which you imagine is difficult, yes? The freedom being taken away. He goes, what I'm going to do, what are you going to do, Paul, now that you're getting out of prison? He goes, I'm going to go back doing the same thing that I did that got me in here. I'm going to do the same thing before. I'm going to go and propagate the gospel. I'm going to go preach the gospel. I'm going to go and, and travel. I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to plant churches. I'm going to disciple people. I'm going to raise up leaders. Now, this is fascinating to me because usually when you have life-changing experiences like prison time, what happens? People are in the midst of it, and they go, I'm changing everything when I get out. Yes? When I get out, I'm going to be a better person, and I'm going to love Jesus more, and I'm going to love my wife, and I'm going to tell my children that I love them. I'm not going to kick my dog anymore. I'm going I'm to make all this change. For Paul, because Jesus was his life, he says, when I get, and if I get out of here, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the same exact thing that I did when I first got in here. In fact, I'm going to return to the same things that got me in here to begin with. That's fascinating to me. And, and, and so, so now I, I want you to understand this. He's not sitting back going, well, look, if I don't get to go to heaven, then I guess I'll just go back to work for Jesus. 
as though it's like a depressing thing. We apparently think working for Jesus can be depressing, okay? And here's, here's why I say it. I'm, it's just, I don't know this for sure. I just know this from observation. I've seen Chris out in the foyer go, we have a need, my people, my brethren, packed full. We have a need. We need somebody who will do this. Pfft, gone. Everyone's gone. It's like watching those old westerns where it's like all you see is like one of those old towns where the dust kind of blows in and a tumbleweed goes by. There's Chris and the tumbleweed. Just every, Everybody's gone, right? Here, Paul is different than many of us. He doesn't run from serving. He runs to serving. And the reason is, is because what he knows. What is it? Serving Jesus is what, what word does he use, the labor there? Fruitful. He knows that anything that he does for Jesus Christ counts eternally and makes a difference. Did you hear that? He knows this. This is what drives him. He knows this. And so what he says here is, is that he's going to continue on. Just a reminder so that you know that God commands us to work with him and be co-laborers. We understand that right. But we do at the same time know that he doesn't need us. Yes? You know he doesn't need you. Some of you might know it too well. Yeah, well, God doesn't need me. I'm going to do anything. That's not the way it's supposed to work, all right? God commands us, calls us, and gives us an opportunity to be co-laborers with Jesus. God does sometimes, on some accounts, work completely apart from us, okay? But guess what? It's rare. We love to hear the stories, the mission stories. I mean, everybody gets excited about this, about how God or Jesus Christ appeared in a vision or a dream of some guy in the remote part of the Middle East, and he's Muslim, had no access to the gospel. Jesus appears to him, and he uses this vision to be able to draw him to faith in Christ. And then we all sit back and go, amen, that is awesome. And God may indeed, if he chooses to be able to work in this way, but the majority of the time, God uses his people as a means for fulfilling his work and his will on earth. Yes? Okay, this is what God does. This is how he uses us almost every single time. And here's what we need to understand is that it is always fruitful. This is what Paul understood. You can work and you can labor in a lot of other things and see nothing, no, no, no fruit produced from it. But what Paul understands is what we understand you share the gospel, you will always see fruit. You may not see it for a long time. You may have to wait for a long time, but his, world, his word will not return void. If you share the gospel, I promise you, you share the gospel enough with the people in Nassau County, somebody's coming to faith in Jesus Christ, amen? So he knows that eventually these things are ultimately going to happen. And because of this, he's hard-pressed, he says. Look at verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. Between what? Being with Jesus and remaining here laboring for fruitful labor. It's not that he, he, he thinks one's better than the other per se, but he's like, I'm torn. Uh, literally that word when it says press between the two, it, it pictures a person walking through a valley with very steep cliffs on either side being pressed in by. He says, I'm being pressed in my desire with being with Jesus and my desire to be able to have fruitful labor amongst the Philippian people and for other people. That's where I am. But then he goes on and says this, which, which I will choose, I cannot tell. Now, Paul is not suggesting that he has the power over his destiny, okay? He, he, he doesn't have it. He's not suggesting, well, you know, I haven't made up my mind yet whether I'm going to be put to death by Caesar or whether I'm going to be set free. He knows that that's up to the sovereign will of God. You, you tracking with me? You, you sure? Do I need funnier jokes? Okay, I think that's it. All right, all right. So he, 
write that down for second service. Funnier jokes. Okay, so, so he's hard-pressed in between the two. He can't tell. The reason that he can't tell what he's going to choose is because he doesn't know what God's will is here. Most important part of the sermon right here. He doesn't know what the will of God is. Have you ever been in a situation you just don't know what the will of God is? It's not abundantly clear right before you. Maybe you're trying to make a decision right now. You don't know to go left, to go right. You don't know what ultimately to be able to do. So he says, I haven't chosen yet. Why? Because it's not clear to me. So now something is about to happen, and you and I are incredibly privileged. What we're going to do right now in the next part of this verse is we're going to see inside the heart and the mind of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see the way that Paul makes daily decisions, decisions that you and I have to make in a daily, every day. Here's how he processes it. I love what one author says. He says, Paul paused to talk to himself, knowingly invited the Philippians to witness the inner deliberations of his heart concerning the will of God. Have you ever done that? You sat there, what what, what does God want me to do? What do I do? Paul's going, hey, he's talking out loud and he's allowing us to be able to see his thought process. Is that pretty cool? I think it's pretty awesome. And so notice, notice what he says. Uh, he stops for a moment, and then he says this, the, the next thing. He says, my desire is to depart and to be with Jesus, for that is far better. Okay, my desire. In other words, his preference. If he has his choice of all things, he knows that the greatest thing is to depart. The word depart there is used for ships, of, of, of throwing off their moorings, raising up the anchor, raising up the sails, and sailing home. He goes, the best thing for me. And he goes, it's not only the best. He goes, it is far better, literally very much better of the two choices to go away and to be with Jesus Christ. Would you, would you say yes? All right. Much better to be able to go with Jesus Christ. But then he says, but... Here's the thought process. What should I do? I have two things in front of me. What should I do? But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Here's what he has. He has to make a decision concerning the will of God. On one side, his preference. On the other side, the betterment and necessity of those who are around him. This is infinitely greater than this. doesn't mean that he doesn't want to do this. It just means that for him personally, would you all agree it would be better for him personally to go on to heaven than to continue because continuing laboring is going to continue suffering, continuing striving, continuing all these things. For what? For what? Himself? No, for these people. So there is the decision that he has to make. The qu- Listen, let me say this before we move anymore. This is basically the, the, the gist of almost every decision that crosses your mind every single day. Every day, when you're about to speak or you're about to do something, you're about to say something or you're about to take part in something, the decision that is going to be before you as a believer in Jesus Christ is this. Is it going to be what I would like, my preference, or is it for the necessity of what I need to do better for other people? Which one am I going to choose? And I guarantee in every relationship that you have with your spouse, with your church, with your friends, with your family, with your home, with your work, everywhere you're making that decision every single day as Paul. How does Paul determine this? How does he determine the will of God? Here's what I would love to do. Here's my preference. Here's how I would like it. Here is what is best for other people. He responds. How does he respond? Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. 
where does Paul learn to live a life like this? Where does he learn to live a life like this? You remember what we said? What is the whole point? First point, to live for Christ. The second point is to live what? Like Christ. Where does he learn this kind of love? Where does he learn laying down his preferences for the good of other people? He learns it from Christ. Do you remember Jesus in the garden? You see this wrestle, decisions, preference over necessity of others. He says, Lord, even in his prayer, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, preference. But not my will, but your will be done. Necessity of other people. Do you see? This is going to seem very simple to you, very simple to you. I'm telling you right now, this is indeed Christian one, Christianity 101. It's basic freshman material. But it is master's and doctorate and PhD, PhD material. I'm telling you right now, your lives, your marriage, this church will be radically changed if we would just learn this principle, this principle. Every decision is a decision between my preference most of the time. Now, stop and think about it for a minute. Many of the decisions we make is not even for good things, which is our preference, but either neutral things. See, Paul was supposed to desire heaven. Jesus placed that desire in him. Is it wrong for him to long to be in heaven? I hope not. Or is Christ is the author of sin because he's placed that desire inside of our heart? You tracking with me? It's a good thing. Many of the things that we are divided on, the decisions we have to make, are either neutral things of preference or, or, or they're maybe even sinful things, and we have to decide, are we going to choose what we want, or are we going to choose the necessity and the better of those people who are ultimately are around me? Which one are we going to do? By the way, in chapter 2, he's going to lay all of this out. And, and I don't want to do it too much. I was struggling with this, because I'm like, if I get into it now, then I won't have anything to preach later. Isn't that sad? Uh, then I'll have to preach. But th the way I look at it is he's preaching here. I'm going to have to preach it again because he realizes we're not going to get it the first time. All right? So here we are. Here's how he's going to say it. Paul's going to say, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only at his own interests, but also at the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do we see what's happening here? What does Jesus do? He steps out of heaven, gives up heaven for the necessity of mankind. What is Paul doing? He's passing on heaven, which is infinitely greater for the necessity of those who are around him. What is he doing? He's living like Christ. Now, I would love to be able to end there, but there's something that I've really, really learned. I have learned, and, and I, tr I try not to be the Holy Spirit for you. Have you noticed that? I try not to sit there and, and give you 16,000 applications going, okay, and let's all get you in front of me. Now, in your uh, application here, sir, tell me about your life. Okay, this is how this works out. Okay, so that you understand you with the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you should identify what truth is from the scripture and then use your responsibility to work this out. You guys got that? But because the point is so important, I'm gonna work this out a little bit for us. Okay, sound good? Sound good? You're like, well, tell us what you're gonna say and then we'll, we'll determine whether that's good. All right, so, so here, here we are. Here's how we make decisions in life. This is what living the Christ-like is. It is for us to decide between our preference and the necessity of other people. Let's talk about our lighting in the church just for a moment. Let's talk about our lighting. Can we do that? 
it's not a sensitive issue or anything. But um, last week, let me just tell you this, it was unbelievable amounts of complaining about the lighting. I mean, it, it, it almost is the, by the way, I am not mad at all. Okay, so you can relax, okay? Uh, you could laugh. What, I'm not mad at all, one bit. Uh, I was for six days, but now I'm really good, okay? Not mad at all, not one iota of anger at all. But I'm trying to take the truth, and I'm trying to apply it. Aren't we supposed to apply it? Here's our application with this. And so you would have thought with as much complaining going on, I mean, instantly, door open, complaint. We don't like the lighting. Too dark, too light, too whatever, whatever. Okay, we, we got that, okay? Listen, just, it, it is what it is, right? It is what it is. Now, let me explain a couple things to you. Um, we get that. I, honestly, I, I think I would have gotten less complaints had I gotten up and said Jesus, uh, that Satan is the only way. I mean, honestly, I'm like, would I have gotten the complaints if I had preached some, some false, you know, doctrine? But instead, it was just, I mean, everybody, everybody, the poor people doing the lighting. I mean, my goodness gracious. First of all, understand, to do our lighting right now, you have to be an octopus, okay? Because there are switches everywhere. We didn't put in the appropriate lighting for what we, what, what we really, the way that we try to work. And so they're back there, and they're flipping stuff and everything. Oh, we don't like the lighting, right? And they're back there, and they're, oh, dear Lord Jesus, they're doing everything that they possibly can to be able to get everything right. So this is, when we first complain, and it's not just about light, it's about anything else. The air, I'm a little bit warm right now too, okay? Uh, so, you know, I see people freezing, I see people hot, whatever. It's life, right? And so I'm talking about all kinds of complaining. Let me, let me tell you what it shows us, the very first thing, the moment we walk out and the first thing we begin to do, complain. Number one, we have to correct, is because somehow, some way, there's a misunderstanding that you and I think that all of this and all the planning and all the praying and all the fasting and all the working and all the searching and all the practices and in the 26 hours a week that I spend in the study, all of that was for you and for your pleasure and for you to approve. It's not. We're not even trying. We're not even trying. Everything that is done for us is to glorify God by making disciples. And here's what I want you to be able to understand. It is ultimately to be able to continue to reach those who are lost. I'm going to expound on that in just a minute, okay? So here, here's where we are. First of all, somehow you think it's about you. And you say, oh, well, I don't think it's about me. When you leave a, a worship service and the word of God is being preached and people are praising and God is working and your first thought is to complain that it doesn't meet your approval for whatever it is, you are saying this is all about me. Can I get an amen? No. Okay, I got to know my. All right, all right. Let's move on. Second thing, second thing, all right? Sometimes, hey, look, I, I really struggle with whether I was going to deal with this, but Paul didn't seem to have a problem to really dictate specific problems within the church it was having. Here's a problem that we're having. Second thing, first of all, people think that it's ultimately always about them. Second thing, we cease to live like Christ because you're not thinking at all the preference of anybody else. You're only thinking about what it is for you. You're not thinking about the necessity of anybody else or, or, or how this impacts anybody else or what ultimately is going to be. Now, listen, let me explain this. I realize that sometimes I, I really don't think that people complaining are even really malicious people. I, I don't think that they're trying to hurt anybody. I don't think that they really mean it to be able to disrupt anything. I just want to let you know your complaining really impacts people to the core, to the core. And I'm just going to say this, and I love you, but if you have complaining, don't go to my secretaries to complain. 
They make no decisions inside of the church. They've got no ability. Leave Tina and Joyce alone. Don't go to them. Don't complain to them. Y- y'all with me so far? You're, you're sitting there going, I'm ready to, to walk out. Follow. We're, we're, we're going to get there. Because there's something very important that you need to be able to understand. And that's this. Many churches become generational churches. Okay? What that means is in their highlight, in their heyday, they have a certain style of music. They have a certain style of dress. They have a certain style of environment and worship service and facilities. Got that? And what they do is they hold on to that because that was the good life. What they unintentionally do is two things. Number one, think about this. They begin to identify spirituality in all that is true with that style of dress, with that style of music, and with that, that type of cultural environment. Do you understand that? And then what they do is if anybody comes or anybody does something different, it is not as spiritual and it is not as godly because these peripheral things are not done the same way that we ultimately want them. That's a huge problem. We probably all experience that. We've probably felt that, right? They don't have Wednesday night church. Liberal! Right? Liberal! Screens, they went away from the little, remember the little overhead power thing? I remember going from that to the PowerPoint overhead. People were like, whoa, wait, what are we doing? We're becoming a little liberal. The liberal churches have screens up on the sides, right? And this is what happens. Second thing that ultimately happens is this, is that we unintentionally, and I mean this, we unintentionally, I don't think anybody means to do this, but what they begin to do is they begin to lay out a series of stumbling blocks from people to get to the gospel. Because in essence, what they're saying is, if you don't look like us, if you don't like what we like, if you don't do everything, this is what Christianity looks like with all of my stylistic preferences. And if you don't line up with all this, then, then you've got to go through all this to be able to get to Jesus. Here's been the goal from square one. The very first message I ever preached in this building, I said this. I said, we will seek to remove every stumbling block to the gospel without removing the stumbling block of the gospel. The gospel is a stumbling block. For a person to be saved, they must admit that they are sinners, and they must say the same thing about their sin as God says about it. Realize that they are deserving of hell and death, and they must repent and turn from it and receive by faith the completed work of Jesus Christ. They have to say, I'm helpless. What they do. That's a stumbling block for many, many, many people. So here's what we want to do, and I want you to know as a pastor and as a staff, we anguish over this. I anguish between... These, these two pressing things of making sure that our church is doing things that help us culturally. Cultures change, right? Styles change. To maintain with some of that cultural relevance, some of that cultural change, be able to continue with that, that really, listen, stop, that doesn't have any bearing biblically or theologically on everything you do. It's just a neutral issue. To make sure that, that, that there's no stumbling block coming to the cross but at the same time, never changing the message, never changing the call, never changing the gospel, never changing the mission. Do you understand? You, you guys with me? Look, I, I realize some are going to be with me, some are going to be mad. I don't mean to make you mad. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help your heart to understand this truth within the word of God. Some of you who might not like this or might not like that or might not like whatever, I got to tell you, there's a lot of things I don't like. A lot of things. A lot of stylistic things. I'm like, well, it's not, it's not really my deal, right? It's just, it's just not my preference. It's no big deal. But here's what I want to let you say. 
We are trying to reach another generation. We want to reach all people, okay? Make sure we're clear. But we want to reach another generation. I'm getting older. I'm passing away. And the older I get, the more disgruntled I get, the more of a crotchety curmudgeon I get, the less I like to be able to change, and the more that I feel I have the right to just express and tell everybody that I'm ticked off. Yes? Anybody else feel that? I am asking every one of you to die to that garbage. Die to that garbage. Fight against that garbage. Fight against that. Know it's true. Know it's right. Don't be handcuffed to some denomination or some person that comes along and says it only looks this way. Be aware and have wisdom to understand that we know what God is doing. Know what is neutral. Knows what is open-handed. No big, no big deal. And knows what is closed-handed. A big deal. And so what we're trying to do, I'll give this one last story. Do I have time for one more story? Okay, some are saying no. Very quickly, very, very, very quickly. So, so I should never ask open questions like that. I know better. But, but, but here, here's why. I went and interviewed with a church one time, and, and, and I went in and I just said, I, I just got to tell you, I don't think that you're really going to reach people the way that you are. I go, some things are just going to be changed. People just don't, there's not going to be any comfort level here. I said, I promise you, if I preach for you, there will be plenty of uncomfort, uncomfortable people. But let's not let our you know, all this stuff be a factor with reaching people. Don't let that be a stumbling block to anyone. And this woman began to cry, and she began to say to me, she goes, I can't believe you're saying this. I've been holding this in. My own children, I know they know Christ, but when I ask them, do you think this will be a church when you get older, they sit back and go, no, not at all. I go, why? Just because it's a, it's a generational church. And I wonder if there's any one of us, any one of us, when you know that your child is lost or your, 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 your grandchild is lost, I wonder if there's any one of us that would give two flips of what kind of light or what kind of music or what kind of carpeting or when they met or whatever, as long as that child went to that church, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, the truth of God's word, and God used that to be able to transform them in the image and likeness of Christ. We would be forever grateful because all that other stuff would melt away. We'd realize that it's not biblical and we'd go with it. Here's what we need to say. The reason, and I've gone on a lot about this, and I would be, I, I, it, it's weighed heavily on the staff. I mean, all week long, all week long. You don't, listen, you don't know. So people sit there and go, well, Brother Mike, if you're asking us not to complain, when do we get to complain? You don't get to complain. No, no. <laughs> because we live in America and we have a complaint department with everything. Well, sir, we just wanted, we're just here to be able to make you happy. We're not here to make you happy. Well, who, do you, who are you to say? It's not me to say, it's God to say. He wants you holy, not happy. But with holiness comes happiness. I got to tell you that. Okay, I, for, I lost where I was. We're going to try to wrap this up. It's just so near and dear to my heart. And so anyway, so, so the reason that I'm saying this is, is this, is will you join me? Look, we're trying to figure the lights out. Do you, you want to know why it's kind of like octopus back there and, you, and it's this and it's that and sometimes too dark and sometimes light? We're not doing it always intentionally. It's just we didn't want to spend the $10,000 that everybody keeps telling us that we have to do to be able to just get normal lighting in here. We're trying. We're working on it. We're trying to do what we can. At the same time, we're trying to remain relevant. That if somebody comes in. Look, I love what my wife said to somebody last week. Somebody just sat there and said, well, it's entirely too dark in there. And, I just, and, and it's okay. They're wonderful people. I just love what my wife says. She goes, you, you've been here around long enough. 
you know today is going to be too dark, tomorrow is going to be too light, the next day there's going to be polka dots up on the stage. It's just the way that it's going to be, right, right, right? And I, and I say this because I love you dearly. Uh, you know what? I got to say this. I I love what a gentleman said, too. This was just awesome. He goes, I'm ready for that darkness. I love this type of thing. And he pulled out a flashlight, and he goes, I'm good. And he'd be good at that. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's the kind of spirit that we should have, right, with this. I need you to join me. I need you to fight this aging thing. I need you to fight this thing that says my preference over the the necessity of other people. Would would you join me with that? And here's why I'm so concerned, and and this is why it was heavy for me. I know that if we can't do it here, or most of us, whether we believe it or not, and we can say, hey, we need to be transparent, all that other kind of stuff. We come to church, we try to put the first foot forward, and if we do it here, there's no way that we are putting the necessity of other people above, uh, above our own preferences in our home and at our work. And the problem with that is, is we're not making Christ big. There's nothing more that makes Christ look big than you living for him and you living like him. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this morning. And I went.